0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Lynn Courshane Allard and Jean-Paul Allard. This year's dramatic growth in the street-level boldness of openly fascist and white supremacist forces in North America turned into fatal violence in the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia earlier in August. As welcome as it is to see the broad wave of horror and condemnation in response, there seems to be far too little recognition of the ways in which such openly preached supremacy and hatred rest on the countless racist messages that permeate our culture, and on the massive harm done every day by racist and settler colonial systems that organize all of our lives. It remains to be seen how much of that horror, particularly in the part of those of us who are not ourselves targeted by racism, will be turned into action to challenge all of the big and little ways that our workplaces, our communities, our places of worship, the stores we shop in, the media we consume, the curriculum we're taught, and so much more are set up in ways that harm black people, indigenous people, and people of color. Lynn Curshane allard and Jean-Paul Allard are both originally from Manitoba, but they and their young children currently live in Ottawa. Lynn is from Sagkeen First Nation, and she has faced racism in all of its forms all her life while Paul is a white settler who grew up in Winnipeg, and who's been learning as an adult about all of the devastating ways that racism permeates our communities. A couple of years ago, they had a chance encounter in a local store with members of a minor hockey team from another part of the province bearing a blatantly racist name and logo. As they set out to address that specific instance, They began to learn more and more about the many sports teams in Ontario that still have names and or logos that are racist, particularly in ways that target indigenous people, and how thoroughly normalized that particular manifestation of racism is in many contexts. Their ways of challenging this racism have shifted over time. At the moment, they're engaged in a human rights complaint against the Ontario Ministry of Education. They argue that allowing students in Ontario's schools to wear names and logos of sports teams that constitute racial slurs violates the Safe Schools Act and the Accepting Schools Act, and that such clothing should be banned. The ministry has thus far declined to take the requested action, and they're scheduled to have a mediation meeting on September 6th. Throughout all of this, they've been quite clear, and have extensively cited social science research to this effect, that this is not just a matter of offense, but a matter of harm. In contrast to gun and torch-wielding fascists roaming the streets, these impacts are often dismissed by people who are not themselves targeted, but Lynn and Jean-Paul are very clear that tolerating racial slurs in the form of logos and mascots propagates stereotypes against indigenous people that facilitate other kinds of discrimination, and causes demonstrable harm, especially to indigenous children. We talk about the harms that are caused by everyday racism, and about the steps that Lynn and Jean-Paul are taking to challenge one facet of that racism, and to make Ontario's schools a little bit safer for their children, and for all Indigenous kids. We spoke, by Skype, from Ottawa.
1: I am Lynn Crochaine. I'm from Sagine First Nation in Manitoba.
2: My name is Jean-Paul Allard. And uh, I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba.
1: What we're looking for is we're trying to get all offensive logos, shirts, clothing, anything that has a derogatory nature towards First Nations. We want to have a ban enforced in schools so that they can't wear those clothing in. This is something that's very personal to me. Because a lot of racism stems from all of these stereotypes that are printed on these shirts or logos that are used in schools, mascots. People get their views from people wearing these. For me, when I was in school, I was called a lot of, you know, unnice things. <laughs> um, I was called, you know, flat face, pie face, Eskimo woman, you name it. Like it, it was, it was not pleasant. I was greeted by war cries by some students. It was not nice. And for someone who receives racism like that, to go into a school as a student and to see it printed on people's shirts, it's very hurtful.
2: Personally, I'm not First Nations, so I think I've grown up oblivious to a lot of the racism It's directed towards First Nations people, you know, on a a societal level and on an institutional level. I think that started to change when Lynn and myself, we got married and and we started a family. And that sort of caused me to think differently about, you know, the messages you hear about First Nations people through media, through news, through how history is presented and just, you know, what people would say to me. I would hear the way people discuss First Nations issues without them being aware of my connection to someone who's First Nations necessarily. And also people's responses when it would come to light that, you know, my spouse Lynn is First Nations or our children are First Nations and how they would respond to that. And then as our children get older, being more cognizant of, you know, how how are all of these messages that are out there? And then the way First Nations issues are being discussed and framed, you know, how is that going to affect the kids? For myself, I work as an educational assistant in the Ottawa Catholic School Board. And I think about my kids' experiences as they get older and they move up through the school system. And, you know, the messages they're going to get sent by teachers about themselves and the messages they're going to get sent by uh, class discussions, there's no way to insulate them from this. And then as parents thinking about, you know, how are we going to try and make sure that they grow up without having to be bombarded by these negative messages about themselves? I was in a class and a teacher was discussing First Nations issues and they were discussing, you know, residential schools and the fallout from that. And it was a sympathetic conversation. But then at the end of it, she made the comment that there's lots of problems facing First Nations communities, but the answer isn't providing any more funding. And I remember thinking to myself, if it was my kid was in this class and they heard a teacher say that First Nations people don't deserve any more funding, what's that going to tell them about themselves? Why wouldn't they deserve any more funding? Is it because they're not worth it? Is it because, you know, you have the racist tropes about corruption and ban councils? Would they think society doesn't think we can be trusted to handle this money? That one particular instant really opened my eyes. And then shortly after that, we were in a toy store in Canada. There must have been a hockey tournament going on at the time. There was a team, the Copper Cliff Redmen. Yeah, the Copper Cliff Redmen, who were in the store. There was about twenty or thirty individuals from that team, and they had these red tracksuits on. And the emblem was small. The stereotypical Indian head mascot. And there's this slur. And this is a team of youths. You know, these were 10 year old kids. Mm-hmm. And then there was a TD Bank logo on the tracksuits. TD Bank was giving their blessing for the use of this slur and its normalization for this youth. And it was just, it was a visceral experience for me to see this.
1: Nobody even blinked twice. No one thought anything of it. It was just so normalized that, you know, these type of logos are okay. This type of stereotype is okay. This racism is okay. Which it's not. And it just shows how blatant it is. And if it had it been any other minority, any other group, it absolutely would not happen. But for some reasons, First Nations, it's okay for that to happen.
2: And then afterwards we decided we would reach out to that particular hockey team. So we called them, we sent a letter to them, eventually we found an email, and along the way we also wrote a letter to the Sudbury Star, which was published, asking why was this acceptable and would the team consider changing to something which wasn't derogatory towards First Nations. And eventually we were able to speak with somebody from the team and they were ultimately dismissive of our concerns and made it abundantly clear that... They weren't envisioning changing the logo at any time in the future.
1: Oh, and that nobody else had any issue with it at all. We were the only people that had ever brought it up to them that had an issue with that name and the logo.
2: And then we reached out to TD Bank. TD Bank did say that they were going to ask in northern and eastern Ontario, their branches, not to knowingly provide support to these teams that use offensive logos for any minority group and then we found out that there's quite a few amateur teams in Ontario that use these logos there's the Meadowvale Mohawks there's the Mississauga Ojibwe and a host of other teams and a lot of them receive funding from Scotiabank through their hockey team and we contacted Scotiabank and were essentially stonewalled by them And that's sort of what God is thinking about taking it in another direction because of our lack of success, dealing with the team.
1: Directly.
2: Yeah. And then dealing with the sponsors. I know there was controversy around the Washington professional football team, but I wasn't aware of the history of First Nations people speaking out against these mascots. I mean, it goes back to 1968 when First Nations students spoke out against Dartmouth University's use of an Indian mascot. So this is something that's been going on for decades. The lawsuits filed trying to strip the trademark from the Washington football team, which has ultimately been unsuccessful. I mean, that went on for years. I mean, there's a decades-long history of First Nations people pushing back against these mascots that I wasn't aware of when we started. When we started looking things up on social media, trying to identify other avenues to address this, we became aware of a gentleman named Brad Gallant in Mississauga, who had issued a human rights complaint against the city of Mississauga on the basis that they were allowing their facilities to be used by teams which bore these derogatory logos against First Nations people on the idea that no other group could be targeted by a team with these racist logos and be allowed to use a city facility. You know, they'd be banned. We contacted him in terms of, you know, trying to figure out how we could move this forward.
0: Tell me more about the current approach that you're taking to address this. So you've launched a human rights complaint against the Ontario Ministry of Education for allowing these kinds of logos and so on to be worn by students in schools. Is that right?
1: Yes, it's in violation of the Safe Schools Act. So the Safe Schools Act is to provide every student with a safe environment for them to go to school in. And honestly, they're not doing that. If they're allowing these mascots and logos and teen names to be worn in schools, then that is not protecting First Nations children. JP had lodged the complaint against the ministry, actually on behalf of our daughter, Isabella.
2: Brad Gallant had initially launched his own complaint against the ministry in, I believe it was last September, and then we launched ours in December.
1: We're more wanting to focus on youth at this point, because until youth start to learn about what's respectful and what isn't, and what should be accepted and what shouldn't be, I think talking to a lot of the adults is not necessarily going to get you too far. You need to start from children. They can start getting a social conscious at a young age about, you know, these logos, they're not acceptable and the reason why they're not acceptable? The adults, they seem to be anyways to me pretty set in their ways and what they think and how they feel about these logos. For some unknown reason, they seem to have an absolute attachment to them, which I think's ridiculous. But if you start with youth, then they're the ones that are really going to be leading in the future. And they're the ones that are going to be able to be teaching about respect and what's appropriate and what isn't.
0: Are there Ontario schools that themselves have racist team names and logos?
1: There are still schools in Ontario that have logos and mascots and team names that aren't appropriate.
0: I think
2: the ministry has sent out a directive for schools to examine whether or not Their teams specifically have derogatory mascots. I know there was one team in Carlton Place, which is close to us, which was named the Red Men, and they've announced that they're going to change. So in response to pressure from Brad Galland and ourselves and other people, the school board has moved towards trying to ensure that their teams specifically aren't using First Nations imagery inappropriately or objectionably but they're resisting any efforts to extend that concern in a meaningful way to pro teams or community teams.
0: What kinds of conversations have you had to have about this issue with your own kids?
1: Two of them are still a little too young. My daughter is eight years old. She has had stereotypes thrown at her. She told her teacher that she was First Nations, and her friend came to school the next day and informed her that she wasn't allowed to play with her anymore because she was a dirty Indian. So, I mean, like, they still face the stereotypes.
2: Our children range between the ages of eight and three, so our hope is that We can address this before we have to sit down and explain to them that, uh, you know, society thinks so little of them that they feel it's all right to continue to use them as mascots. So we're hoping by taking this action that when they start becoming more aware of this, it's not going to be as commonplace and it's not going to be as crushing for them.
0: And tell me more about the basis of your human rights complaint.
2: You know, what we hear back on social media or just reading the comment section, you know, of any of the news articles is the idea that First Nations people should be happy that these representations are out in public because it's...
1: It's empowering them.
2: Yeah, it's it's the bestowing (laughs) of a great honour. And so to sort of attack that, we tried to place it in our human rights complaint in historical context. I think the first professional team to use a mascot, in the American Baseball League was in 1912. The Washington Football Team, the Chicago Blackhawks, you know, the Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves—all of these teams adopted these mascots at a time when, because of the civilization regulations in the United States and because of you know the racist laws in the Indian Act, it was illegal to actually be a native person in these countries. You couldn't. Practice your ceremonies. You couldn't wear regalia off of the reserve without worrying about a month in prison. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't hold powwows on the reserve without the fear of imprisonment. I mean, Canada and the U.S. were apartheid states during this time. There was the past system in Canada which kept First Nations people imprisoned on reserves for 60-some years. So for a person to be First Nations and to go and be honoured by one of these sports teams, you know, they would essentially have to be emancipated. They would have to renounce being First Nations. I was reading Edmund Watanabe's, I butchered his name, Up Ghost River, his memoir of his time in St. Anne's Residential School. He talks about his uh, grandfather. Basically being arrested by the RCMP for practicing his ceremonies and growing his hair long and being disappeared. So we're trying to place it in that context to sort of explain that the only justification given... Being that this somehow is an honour is is just completely absurd because the American government, the Canadian government, and just society in general was bent on destroying First Nations culture and First Nations peoples. This wasn't about honouring, it was about making a fast buck. It's just simple exploitation. And schools are all about best practice, what's best for the students. And there's lots of research into these mascots, you know, that show they're not good for students. Stephanie Freiberg has done research that shows exposure to Native mascots. It damages the self-esteem of Native youth. She's shown that exposure to these mascots erodes their belief in their community. She's shown that exposure to these mascots limits what they see themselves doing in the future. There was a study question of honor Chief Wahoo and American Indian stereotype activation that showed that the Chief Wahoo, it didn't activate positive stereotypes among people who viewed it. You know, it activated the negative stereotypes. There was study in-group, out-group dynamics of Native American mascot endorsement And the conclusion of that study was that the University of North Dakota was practicing institutional racism by using the mascot because a native student there to be seen positively by their peers had to support the mascot. And so if schools are really concerned with best practice and doing what's best for the students, then they need to take into account how this harms the mental health of First Nations people you know, and I, I would say, to a certain degree, the mental health of non-Native students. Because, I mean, there's a study out there that shows that Exposure Native mascots increases stereotyping among people who view it. I mean, is that a positive trait we want to be promoting in students? And so it was just a matter of putting this information together and presenting it to the ministry and hoping that they would recognize.
0: And do the right thing. What kind of response have you received from the Ministry of Education?
1: The response was along the lines of, you know, we were the only ones that really brought this up and thought it was an issue.
2: In the response, they try and suggest that they've already addressed this issue in that they've reached out to Native communities on a wide variety of issues and they're working in partnership with. So it was just really a sighting of, of all of these different initiatives where they have seeking consultation with First Nations people. I mean, they even included the seven youths investigation into student deaths in Thunder Bay in their response to us. Any point where any First Nations group in Ontario had been consulted on anything was basically... What
1: they threw in. <laughs> what they threw
2: at us and said,
1: we're doing our part. No one except you really has any issue. The other communities, we've been talking with them, and they don't seem to have any issues with how we're running the schools.
2: A lot of it is the idea that they're promoting this dialogue in schools, and and they're asking that school boards examine their policies and that they promote positive images of First Nations people. They encourage
1: students to take a look at what it is that they're wearing and ask them if it's appropriate
2: and we don't really think that's
1: that's not a ban
2: no and it's not sufficient i mean i work in a school the school i work for in specifically this year had adopted that policy and i mean i saw red skin paraphernalia i saw chief wahoo i saw these logos in the hallways
1: it's not good enough
2: I think it's something that's so ingrained, and I think the school system does such a poor job really explaining the history of Canada. They don't talk about Canada being an apartheid nation for half of its existence. They don't really talk about the fact that residential schools was a genocidal act based on the fact it was transferring children from one group to another group. They don't really get into the extent of
1: The damage they caused.
2: Yeah. So if they're not giving students these facts, they can't expect the students to really look themselves at what they're wearing and make informed decisions about that, because they don't have the tools to make those decisions, because they're not presented with the actual facts.
0: So as you're waiting for your mediation meeting with the Ministry of Education on September 6th, what would you suggest that people do to show their support?
2: If people are interested in supporting this case and helping us put pressure on the Ministry of Education of Ontario to do the right thing, we're hoping that they send us letters of support and then we can pass those on to the Ministry of Education. And hopefully if if we can demonstrate that we have community support and the support of allies, that'll put pressure on the Ministry to do the right thing and to take this seriously.
1: For those people who are interested, if you have a Twitter account, my handle is at Lynn. So capital A-L-L-A-R-D and then capital L-Y-N-N-E. And then there we can, you know, kind of work out the details. And if you're interested in sending a letter or just, you know, tweets of support, that would be great.
0: And beyond the step, of keeping racist logos and so on out of Ontario's schools, what else do you think needs to happen to address some of the underlying issues that we've been talking about?
1: I think proper education of our children. I think that that's where everything would start, is for the Ontario curriculum to be changed so that it includes a much wider range of First Nations issues and First Nations history.
2: I know the ministry is working towards that, but I mean, it varies greatly from school board to school board and from school to school, what's being taught and where the focus is on. We would like the ministry to give more direction on that because I don't think change is going to come necessarily from courses, you know, teaching First Nations art or First Nations cultural practices. It's nice, and I think it's important that various aspects of First Nation culture are promoted and recognized, but I don't think that replaces teaching the actual history, teaching people about the treaty process. Why are there First Nations? You know, what, what are the rights these First Nations have? How did the treaty process come about? What are the responsibilities on both sides of these treaties? How are these treaties broken by the Canadian government? How are they infringed upon? And, uh, you know, what is the Indian Act? What were those portions of the Indian Act that discriminated against First Nations people? I think in Canada, there's such an ingrained notion of this country being built on equality and, you know, diversity. How many times growing up did you hear Canada is one of the greatest places in the world to live? And I know for myself, as somebody who's not First Nations, you buy into that. You believe it. And it's that belief in this censored history of Canada that allows this discrimination to continue. And that has to be broken down. Schools have to stop censoring First Nations history.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Lynn Kershane allard and Jean-Paul Allard about their human rights complaint against the Ontario Ministry of Education seeking a ban on the wearing of clothing displaying racist logos and team names in Ontario schools. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.